Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A quick disclaimer before we start. Tear It Down is a podcast about all things mental health. Therefore, it may contain coarse language, adult themes, and subject matter that may be distressing to some listeners, such as suicide, self-harm, and references to drug and alcohol abuse. Please, listen at your own discretion. If you yourself are struggling, you can reach out to Lifeline on 13 1114. Hello and welcome back to Tear It Down. Tearing the stigma down one story at a time. I'm Jamie Paltz, and today's guest is Dr. Steve Ellen. Steve is a psychiatrist. Well, not only is he a psychiatrist, but he's also a professor of psychiatry at the Melbourne University and a director of the Psychosocial Oncology Program at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne, Victoria. Steve has hosted a TV show on SBS called How Mad Are You? He's the co-author of Mental, Everything You Never Knew You Needed to Know About Mental Health and The Pocket Guide to Psychiatry for Students. Steve makes frequent TV appearances and he's the radio host on Triple R, a radio show called Radiotherapy, all in the name of mental health. Steve's knowledge is extensive and his passion is evident. All in all, he works in the mental health field all day and he himself has suffered with mental health issues. And I open up the conversation with a very smart and intelligent question. What else do you do, Steve? Um, yeah, I can never remember. I, I, I ride my bike a lot. Um, I, uh, you know, so I, lo- I used to do triathlon. I love, I play drums. I'm a drummer. I sometimes nice. call myself a drummer, you know, just to break the, psychi- the psychiatrist sort of mystique. I still play in a band with mates, but we're terrible. Or at least <laughs> I'm terrible. The rest of them are pretty good. Um I'm a dad. I've got a son. He's 23 years old. Um, yeah, it's just all the usual stuff, really. <laughs> Welcome to Tear It Down, and thank you so much for joining me. And just to give the listeners a bit of a background, I was um, put in touch with you by Michelle Laurie, who's the host of Australian True Crime, and also she used to be on the project. But um, she, who's got me in touch with you, and you know, you for Australians, uh, you're on SBS. Um, How mad are you? That uh, two part series. Yeah, so I hosted that one. Um, you know, that was an, just so, you know, people probably won't remember. It was an interesting program. It was 10 people, five with a mental illness, five without, a panel of three big experts, a professor of psychology, psychiatry, and a super senior nurse. And they had to try and figure just from watching people's interaction and every day doing various activities who didn't, didn't have a mental illness. I was the host. And the gist of the show was that you just can't tell. So stigma is stupid. You've got all these ideas about, you know, what it is to have a mental health, but it's actually bullshit. You can't tell who does and doesn't, so you should stop it with the stigma. That was the gist. I don't know if we pulled it off as well as we hoped, but uh, it was a lot of fun doing it. 
That's incredible. What a, what a great concept that is, eh? It was an English television show from about eight years ago that, um, that uh, um, God, I've got a mental blank on the producers, this amazing film company in uh, out of Sydney. Um, originally an Indigenous film company that sort of transitioned to social causes. They also do that, you know, homelessness one on SBS and, and uh, they've just got incredibly good intentions about improving the world. And, you know, then their most recent one was a similar sort of show, not quite not quite the same sort of style, but around drug and alcohol problems, trying to demystify and destigmatize that. They're just, it's going to come to me, but they're an amazing um, film group and they work with SBS to make these great programs. Really clever people. Oh, absolutely. And we need more of that. We need more of that because slowly but surely, uh, the stigma will be broken. I know you've been involved as a psychiatrist, so you're very you know, educated in in the realm of mental health and all sorts of medications and all what and whatnot. But what's your personal connection to mental health? Have you yourself experienced something in that regard? Yeah, you know, it's funny when you work in mental health. One of the first things you see is that pretty much everyone you meet has a mental health story. Nearly always their own, but if not their own, a couple of friends and a couple of relatives. Mm-hmm. And uh, and at first, when you work in it, you sort of get the feeling, oh, it's just because I work in the field that, you know, da-da-da-da-da. And then you sort of think, no, it's not. These are people, you know, every time I meet someone in a shop or in a cafe or when I go on a date with someone or when I meet new friends, they've got exactly the same. So then you start to think, oh, I'm just finding it out because I'm a shrink. They feel comfortable telling me. And so my sense is I've never met anyone who doesn't have some relationship, nearly always personal, but if not, half a dozen people in their closest circle. And mine's both. Mm-hmm. You know, so I've suffered from depression I've, and I've always been a fairly anxious person. And then in my family, you know, I could, in fact, if I think of my my family, if they listen to this or got my phone mad at me, might say I'm over-diagnosing, but I have to think hard about someone who hasn't got some issues, not yeah. someone who, <laughs> yeah. And so it's always been hand in hand for me my whole life. Everyone, you know, and because I've been passionate and interested in it, even since I was a kid, I was interested in psychology and stuff. Um, you know, I've always seen it's, you know, for me, it's just like I just see it everywhere I go and it doesn't seem odd to me in any way. Um, so, yeah, but my personal story, I guess you'd call it if you had to give it a name, you know, and, you know, us shrinks, we don't really like naming things. We, we've got, yeah, it makes yeah. us feel strange because hard to name complex phenomena like we experience. Um, but mine would be called, yeah, depression, probably on a background of being a sort of a, a reasonably, you know, my psychiatry mates basically say I've either got attention deficit attention deficit disorder, mild, mild bipolar, I'm always a slightly high, slightly manic, I love, you know, and, um, and, and, and you, know, I'm a, you know, I'd say I've got quite a strong anxious drive. You know, I'm driven to be a bit of a perfectionist. Right. Was that something that you were aware of when you were a child or is this something that's been, you know, you're a psychiatrist, you're practicing and then people start bringing this to your attention or you as an educated person start realizing, oh, I've got these traits? I think the, the latter. I think the last. So what happens when you're a medical student is you diagnose everything in yourself. Mm. So, you know, and this is just notorious amongst med, amongst med students. You know, everything you read, you think you've got it. Um, you know, you read about cancer and that night you feel a pain and you think, I think I've got one. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's no difference when you study psychiatry and psychology. Everything you read, you go, you sort of, the first time you read it, I, I remember this so clearly as a young student, the first few times you read, you sort of look at it and go, oh, oh, that's abnormal, is it? Oh, that, mm. oh I've got a bit of that. Oh, 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 I've got a bit of that too. And, you know, and so you gra- and so I guess what happens is you, you gradually learn the language to describe what you felt your whole life. 
So probably by the time I was 25, I was pretty aware that I was anxious. You know, I wouldn't sleep well the night before if I had to do a presentation the next day. You know, my heart would be pumping if Mm. I was waiting for my turn to go and, you know, say we were doing a talk and often, you know, there's five 10-minute talks from the students. And uh, Steve, you're third and today you're talking about arthritis in the hand. And, you know, I know as the third one's coming up, I feel like I'm going to be sick and I'm thinking I might have to leave the room. So gradually in my 20s, I started to realise, oh, I've got what people would call, you know, a little bit of performance anxiety or maybe social anxiety or, you know, I'm an anxious person. I worry about everything uh, much more than everything else. Then when I became a psychiatrist, I started realising, oh, no, I worry about things exactly the same as other people. It's just that, you know, other people don't mention it until they see a shrink. Then when I was about, oh, how many years ago now? God, I'm bad on maths. You know, five or six years ago, I had a, a distinct episode of depression. Mm-hmm. So, And that was the first time in my life. In fact, the only time in my life. And I was depressed for about a year following a relationship breakup. And that more sort of fitted the medical model. You know, I wasn't depressed before. Something bad happened. I got depressed. After a while, I got treatment. Then I got better. And that sort of is what people think of as an illness. Something yep. happens, you get sick, you get treatment, you get better. But the rest of it, you know, I wouldn't say, I don't think I suffer from an illness of anxiety. I just think part of my personality is to be a bit anxious. Yep, agree. I'm the same. So did you find it hard to reach out when you said you got help? Did you find it hard to, you know, like, oh, guys, I'm a psychiatrist. So I can't really be doing this. Or did you, did you find a stigma about it or did you just reach out? No, a bit of both. Yeah. Look, on the one hand, I didn't feel stigmatized. On the other hand, I didn't really, I don't know. I don't know how much it was stigma and just, again, my personality. I'm not a sherry, carry person, even though I'm a shrink. I'm not the sort of person who meets my mates and say, you know, and, you know, grabs my beer and says, you know, oh, today I'm worried about my relationship. It's just not me. I, mean, I grew mm. up in a very traditional working class family. You know, we, we, Our passion is Collingwood, not sharing our feelings. I know that sounds like a stupid cliche, but I still didn't feel that comfortable. So when I got a bit depressed, I wasn't, when I first got depressed, I sort of took a clinical approach. So I started looking at myself saying, okay, is this just, you know, grief? I've gone through a relationship breakup. You know, I've had a pretty stressful 10 years as well, pre to the relationship, not to do with the relationship. You know, my mum had died. I'd gone through a divorce. um, Things like that. And so I thought "Mm, this could just be, you know, a little bit of stress pressure. And so I kept an eye on myself. And after a while, I wasn't getting better, you know, after about six or seven weeks. And I thought, this is a bit longer than normal. And so I started, you know, doing what I normally tell my patients to do, just keep a little diary of my mood. So I was just rating myself from zero to 10, where zero is rock bottom, rather be dead, and 10 is good as gold. And I was giving myself a score every day, just, you know, not because I was thinking, you know, I probably should see someone, but I'll be my own GP first. And uh, after about another month, my scores were all under five and, you know, I was feeling shit and I had lots of symptoms of depression, you know, like at night I'd often cry and, um, you know, I'd often just feel incredibly negative and couldn't concentrate and felt like I was a little bit outside my body, just sort of going through the motions. And so after a while I thought, yeah, I've got to get some help. And it was, and you know, your question, how hard was it? You know, it was a little bit hard because I didn't really want to see anyone who knew me. I wanted to see someone who didn't know me from a bar of soap. So I decided not to see a psychiatrist and went to a non-medical therapist. You know, there's heaps of, you know, like psychologists and social workers who do therapy. So I picked a therapist who's non-medical, who I didn't know their name, didn't know them from a bar of soap. They didn't know me. And then I, uh, and I, and once I, and that, that wasn't that hard to find, you know, but it took about four weeks to get in and yada, yada. And the rest was, then I saw them for about, I think, 11 months or something, close to a year, 10, 11 months. Okay. 
So you, you're good now. You've been through that episode and you're back your normal self. Yeah. Yeah, that was a while back. Um, so that, as I say, it was about six or so years ago. And uh, after, you know, after that sort of initial year, that year, yeah, I'd say I was back to normal. I think it changed me, though. That's why I hesitate when I say back to normal, you know, because this, you know, just because, you know, what is normal? You know, so I think it changed me a little bit. Like I, I'd class myself as a much more emotional person now. You know, like I can cry during an episode of Big Brother. It's pathetic. You know, something nice happens on Big Brother. You know, it's, path- you know, and again, that just, yeah. and it's not pathetic. I know it's, it's again, that's my, you know, background, you yeah. know, where I see the expression of emotions often, even though I don't clinically come along and see me as a shrink and I'm a different person. But in my personal life, my background is I see the expression of emotions as being a little bit weak and pathetic. And I know it's just fucking stupid. I yeah. know it. As you can see, it drives me nuts, but it's just who I am. Yeah. So I'm different. So I still express emotions and stuff now, but I still don't like doing it publicly. Like mm. if I know, I, I love having a cry over a soppy movie now, whereas in the past I didn't. That's yeah. how I've changed. And I'm a little bit more sensitive to other people's emotions in everyday life. You know, when I'm in an, an office, I'm switched on. I'm tuned in to what's their emotional state. and I'm, But when I'm just with my mates and stuff, I'm not thinking about that stuff, whereas I'm a little bit more attuned now. So I think it has changed me a bit, but I still wouldn't feel comfortable. Like if I know I'm going to see something soppy or whatever, you know, I'll go to the movies by myself or I'll watch the TV <laughs> show by myself. I'll watch it on Netflix in the privacy of my own room, you know, with a hanky or, you know, I'm old school yeah. hanky not to you, and I'll have a decent cry just by myself. That's good. So when you when you go out with your mates and uh, someone says watch a movie, you're like, well, I'm picking the movie or I'm not coming. Well, no, 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 I wouldn't do that. In fact, I don't see movies with mates. Yeah, actually, that's not and completely true. I'm on holidays at the moment. I saw a movie with mates just last week. But uh, yeah, look, I spoke. Yeah, but I wouldn't go. I wouldn't push them to see what I want to see. But if they're seeing something that it's not going to suit me to see in public, mind you, there's other reasons. You know, I'm a cranky old man. If the cinema's got uncomfortable seats, then there's no way the movie's going for more than an hour and twenty minutes. And the popcorn's way too expensive. Yeah, it's it's my biggest cutoff now. You know, no, I'm going. I I can watch it on Netflix or on you know whatever. That's it. Did being a psychiatrist? uh, Did you ever just get over hearing other people's problems all the time? No, I don't think so. No, 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 because it's different when you're a psychiatrist, it's your job. You know, that'd be, a quick, I, you look, you do get sick of it. Just like, say you're a mechanic. Sometimes you think, oh, Jesus, I'm sick of fixing cars. You know, my back score today. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, have to move another engine. And sometimes you do get a little bit worn out with it. Um, but you tend to manage it. Um, you know, when you're in your training, training goes for five years, you know, so you've already done medicine for six years and then you do another five years. So you get a lot of training in um, how to, how to um, deal with the stress and a lot of its systems that are built around you. So we all have compulsory peer review where we have to, you know, it's compulsory. We have to sign off and sit with, you know, colleagues and talk about, you know, what, what we're doing, you know, in a de-identified way, of course, and talk about our own experiences. So there's lots of supports. And also I work in the public hospital where you're never by yourself. You know, you're, I'm always surrounded by other psychiatrists, trainee doctors, medical students, psychologists, social workers, nurses, and everyone supports each other and shares the load. Um, But even then, I do get burnt out if I do too much face-to-face clinical work. And everyone has their own level. I know some people who can do 30 hours a week, you know, and then 10 hours of admin or whatever, Um, whereas I can probably tolerate about 10 to 15 hours without sort of getting a little bit burnt out by it, Mm. and I've always done that. So I work in a public hospital. I do a mix of research, teaching, administration, 
Um, and then, uh, you know, clinical work, probably about eight to 10 hours a week. And, you know, that's, and I find if I do less than that, I don't enjoy the job. You know, so right. if I don't do some clinical work, the job feels you doesn't feel like it's got value and meaning. You know, if all I'm doing is administering and researching, it feels like I'm just a pen pusher. Even though they've got their interests and challenges, and I'm not diminishing those roles, they're unbelievably you know, important, and I do them, I love them. But unless I'm doing some clinical work, like it's sometimes I'm super busy in my research or admin, and I don't get to do clinical work for a couple of weeks, and then I start to feel like, what's, what's the point? What was the point of being a doctor? And so, no, I don't really, you know, so, yeah, a long-winded answer. But, yeah, yeah, I, there's potential to get sick of it, but you have to balance it yourself because, you know, if, if I sat in a room for 30 hours a week hearing of people's troubles, yeah, I reckon I'd get burnt out. The show will return after this quick break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Because as a psychiatrist, I mean, you're, you're only dealing with people most of the time. I mean, that's, I'm overgeneralizing here, but most of the time you're dealing with people when they're at a critical state, right? Like they're, yeah. they're not just, are. yeah, they're not just, I mean, some would probably just have a regular appointment for the rest of their life, but some people are reaching out to you or coming to you because they're at rock bottom or they're, you know, suicidal. So, I mean, it's not, it's not lighthearted stuff. No, it's surprisingly though, there is, you know, this is weird, but there is a lighthearted element to it. You know, nearly everyone has, you know, that concept gallows humour. You know, when they're going, you know, when they're facing the gallows, they can still smile. So there's an element of that always. And even if people are very depressed, they'll often crack a wry joke. And so there isn't, it's not all as down. And it sort of depends on the sort of work you do too. So I've, I've sub-specialised over the years. And so I'm what's called a consultational liaison psychiatrist. And that's a stupid name. But what it means is I purely consult. So I work in hospitals with people who have medical and surgical problems. So for years I did HIV, burns, spinal injuries, road trauma. These days, for the last five years, I've specialised in cancer. So all I see is people with cancer. And not all of them are depressed and not all of them are, you know, a lot of them are just wanting to, um, not just, but they're wanting to understand their cancer and the impact on them and dealing with the stress of telling their family. And, some, and it's, um, you know, and a lot of the time it's unbelievably interesting because people... You know, when people are facing something like cancer, they're almost the most honest in their whole life. There's no bullshit. When you think your life's going to end, you, you don't come along and bullshit and beat around the bush for three months, you know, hiding your problem. You know, a lot of people take, you know, months and months to actually say what their problem is, yep. you know, that it's something that they're embarrassed about, it's some deep secret. Um, whereas when people have got cancer, they come in and I'm scared I'm going to die and these are the bloody things I want to sort out, doc. Let's get moving. And so, it's, so I find the cancer work super interesting. Yeah, right. That is very interesting. I mean, uh, and the gallows humor. Um, yeah. yeah, that's so true. Just watching some of my friends who have been through, you know, illnesses and stuff like that and facing some pretty dark stuff, but they can still crack a joke. And I've had friends who have, you know, committed suicide and, uh, or, or tried to, and you look back at the text messages and stuff and you think, oh, like I, I just didn't pick up any, any of it. You know, I didn't, in hindsight, you probably do, but there were so many, 
there was still an element of themselves, an element of their of their humor coming through. And anyway, bit of a side topic, but yeah, context is everything, you know. But I, I'm just on that topic though, because I've dealt. I'm my one of my best friends at um, uni killed himself, and um, you know, same thing. Context is everything. So at the time when people are sending you those messages, you're not in the context of this is a suicidal person. So you're looking and going, oh, that's a bit, oh, he might seem a bit down, but I oh, had a shit time at work lately, no big deal. We all, you know, so, but then, of course, after they've killed themselves and now in the context of I'm looking at someone who um, died by suicide and you look back and you go, oh, 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 yeah, should have picked up, should have picked up. And, of course, at the time, you could you not you, you're not, you know. No. Yeah. People, you know, that's this whole thing about people blaming themselves after a suicide you know, it's completely obvious that they'll do it, but it's mm. completely crazy that they do it because, you know, you just don't know. You know? No. <laughs> I've yep. seen so, you know, I would have seen a thousand suicidal people in my life now, at least, you know, who I've assessed and you just don't know. Did the police or the family tell you or this person actually did commit suicide? Yeah, yeah I, I, well, it's hard to know. There, there must be some people in my career who I've seen who died by suicide who, and I never found out, but you found, find out a lot. You know, because the police notify you, they normally want to report, um, or the hospital finds out. You know, or the family tell the hospital, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I would assume nearly always we find out, but I mm. would assume there's a small number of people who have died who I looked after and I never knew. You know, I just you know I'd stop seeing them and they die later, and I there's no way you know no one would think to tell me because I'm not involved anymore or because the, you know they just didn't remember who to tell. So yeah, I'm sure there's some who I didn't find out. And how often do you find? people are honest with you when they're coming to see you or in the past even how often like i know you mentioned the cancer people being very upfront but typically speaking most people like to hold back a little bit you know save face a little bit and not say how bad it really is do you find people are very honest with you when they're coming to see you um 100 of people hold back of course yeah. They don't know you when they first come. So the first, you know, and it's just, you know, when you meet someone socially, you know, you begin by talking about the weather when mm. you sort of, you know, whatever, something trivial. And then the way relationships form is you start to each, you know, over time, share a little bit more about yourself. And the relationship goes deeper and deeper and deeper as you gradually share more, find that you're not being judged, trust the person, then they share something, they see that you're not judging and they trust you, and then it deepens. It's exactly the same in a clinical relationship, only we're good at speeding it up. We're tra- you know, we're trained and skilled in speeding it up. So, you know, I'll say to people in the first appointment, you know, my I've got standard lines that just roll off the tongue. You know, I say now, you know, okay, you know, thanks for coming along. Look, as you know, I'm Steve, I'm a psychiatrist. Um, you know, you've been referred by such and such. They've already told me that you've got depression. The way it works is I'm going to ask you to tell me a little bit about your story, a little bit about your background. At times, I'm going to ask you questions just to push you a little bit, but you just tell me as much or as little as you feel comfortable with. There's absolutely no rush. And if anything I say doesn't make sense, just say, hey, Steve, why are you asking that? So, mm-hmm. and then I let them talk. And, you know, over after the first session, what I sort of hope happens is I get a rough idea. They go home and they think, oh, that wasn't so bad. He seemed like an okay guy. Maybe they, you know, Google me and see, oh, yeah, okay, he's legit. He's got degrees. He's not a bullshit artist. Or they, you know, they speak to whoever referred them and they, and they say, oh, I saw Steve, he seemed okay. And they say, oh, yeah, I've referred other people to him. He's good. Trust him. So then you go through that usual process. And then over time, and I've had people who, will tell me everything on within one or two sessions or three sessions. And then I've had other people who um, take, uh, even though they seem to trust me completely, they take um, 
months yeah. to tell me the key bit of information. You know, I, I, I still, I'm, I'm, I'm smiling because I remember some of the funny cases over the years, you know. You know, one of my favourites ever, and I'm going to totally de-identify this one and not give details of the story, was a person who I saw for ages to do with some problems with um, their relationship. And I just couldn't figure out what was going on. I'd gone through everything. I'd interviewed their partner. We'd gone through everything under the sun. We tried this, that, and the other. And someone else said to me, I think the problem is with that person that you're having trouble with, that I think that they're gay and that they're not telling you and that they're having trouble admitting it. And it was, you know how I said earlier, we have peer review, you know, with our colleagues where we talk about, you know, our challenges and difficult stuff. It was someone in one of those sessions. And I said, well, how would you know? You don't even... Mm-hmm. I've never thought that once. How would you know? And I worked used to work in HIV, so I worked a lot in gay men's health. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would have thought my radar for that sort of, for, um, you know, it was pretty good. I would have seen, I don't know how many hundred, thousands of gay guys and, mm-hmm. you know, working in HIV. So I thought my radar was pretty good. And he didn't even know the patient. He said, no, I think I know which patient you're talking about. You're talking about the person who comes in, you know, on, on a Tuesday at 2 o'clock, aren't you? I've seen him in the waiting room. Yeah, he's a gay guy and he sort of, yeah, he... That's his eyelids a little bit when you walk out to get him. I said, no. Oh. You know, I think, you know, and, and the very next appointment I said to him, you know, listen, I want to ask you something. Please don't take offence because, you know, I know some people feel, you know, stigma about things like homosexuality. I don't, but I'm just wondering if I missed something, you know, maybe, maybe you know, is there something you're not telling me about your sexuality? Um you know, and you know, so I tried to word it in a nice way, and you know, obviously, you know, haven't worked. It, you know, I want, you know, I was trying to do it in a nice, non-stigmatizing way. And he sort of looks at me. And by the way, I was about the fourth psychiatrist he'd seen, and he hadn't got better. And he'd been referred to me as the sort of, you know, the expert, professor, professor sort of thing. You know, go and see this guy. He's a professor. Maybe he can sort it out. You know, it's a difficult case. So he'd seen four shrinks already over about four or five years, mm. and and he sort of looks at me and he goes quiet. And he says, damn it, you're right. Yeah, I'm gay. And, I, you know, I could not have fallen off the seat. You know, this was, I, you know, I don't know, six months into it. Yeah. I said, really? He said, yeah. And he said, yeah. And he tells me this whole backstory. What a and, breakthrough. Um, and uh, I was saying, well, why didn't you tell me? Mm. He said, oh, I don't know. I've never been able to tell anyone. And uh, anyway, then you know, everything went fine from then on. We talked about, you know, how to, he had to sort of come out and all that sort of stuff and the challenges, of course, but, you know, that, that, was, that was the root of all of his problems. And uh, so what I'm getting at is, yes, yeah, some people hold their secrets for ages. Now, he must have been coming along every time thinking, I've got to tell Stephen Gay. Today's the day. I've got to tell him, you know. <laughs> and he must have been thinking this, you know, all along, but just couldn't get the courage, even though, you know, I would have argued that I'm reasonably easy to talk to. Mm. I don't know. Well, there you go. It's really cool that you mentioned that you were anxious about speaking and you get really nervous and your heart was pumping and all that. But, you know, no, that didn't hold you back throughout your career. You've become a professor. So you have to get up and talk to people. You've been on the radio a bunch of times. You have to talk to people. You're a TV host. You have to talk to people. And now you go to hospitals where you walk around and you talk to people. Um, so that's really good to know that. It doesn't have to, you know, if you if you fear something, you don't have to stop it. You know, you can get through that and you're a perfect testament to that. Well, I just took the attitude early on because, you know, I wanted to do a lot of teaching and public speaking and stuff. You know, I love it. I really love being involved in public discussions and public debates. I'm an opinionated prick. And so I always want to give my opinion. And you're a and bike so rider. Gee, you're ticking yeah. the boxes. 
Yeah, I, <laughs> I almost had a road rage incident the other day, but I won't talk about that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so I took the attitude that I just have to say yes to everything. But having said that, sometimes I do say no. Like I got a TV off of a while back to do some regular work on a show that I love. And uh, I said no because I was really busy at work and stressed and I knew that it was going to take a shitload of emotional energy. Mm. You know, I knew I was going to have to do it every, it was every two weeks. I had to, was meant to do this thing. And I knew it was going to mean every two weeks a night where I was going to sleep really badly, be exhausted the rest of the day. And so normally I would say yes, but I was going through a busy period at work and I just thought, it's just it's just going to knock me over. I'm not going to have the emotional yep. energy. So I said no. But, I, you know, I said to myself at the same time, okay, you know, you can only get away with this once. Yep. You know, you're saying yes. So I say yes to everything. That's always been my approach. And I find as long as I do, you know, I do radio pretty much once a week at least on mm. average. But I find, say I go three months, I'm on holidays or go away overseas and I don't do radio. The next time I come back, I'm a bit nervous. If I haven't done TV, for, I always get but I'm pretty good on radio and podcasts these days. You know, mm. no nervousness at all. TV still gets super nervous, especially if it's live. Like I've done yeah. the project a lot. They pre-record much easier because whenever I stuff up, they cut it out. They only yeah. put the good bits to air. They pre-recorded like an hour before they record the interview. And I've I've walked out of their studio and thought, oh shit, how embarrassing. Mm. You know, everyone's going to be laughing at me tonight. And then I go home and I watch it and I just look so slick because, you know, they cut out all the stupid bits where I stumbled and had a drink of water, Um, you know, but still, you know, bad thing. You know, I've had the odd panic attack. I had panic attack on ABC once, but I was on with um, Catherine Devaney who, uh, you know, wrote that book Mental With. And, Mm. you know, she knows me well and she could tell I was starting to get panicky. She could see, you know, that my mouth had gone dry and I wasn't speaking. (laughs) And so she just took over and no one even noticed. You know, I just sat there mute the rest of the interview and uh and um at the end of a paper said oh you were so good you were so good steve and got, i had a panic attack and i didn't speak for the last five minutes really i didn't notice you know i'm just sitting on the couch and no one notices while whilst catherine was doing all the talking for me so yeah you know so it's never held me it's never stopped me you know i reckon i could have done a lot more if i wasn't anxious but it's certainly not stopped me doing you know but you have to push yourself you know you do you have to push yourself but you've got to know your limits and you've yep. got to know you've got strong times and weak times. Mm-hmm. And there's times in the year, there's normally three months of every year where I'm just bloody exhausted and I don't mm-hmm. take on extra shit. And yep. then there's three months where I've got a bucket load of energy and you could ask me to, you know, stand up on, um, you know, Australia's Got Talent and sing. And I'd say, <laughs> yeah, I'll do it. Then the other six months, it's about average. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, what an interesting um, story you've got, mate. And the fact that you were a, a psychiatrist on ABC talking about, probably that subject, having a panic attack, not saying anything is just so, I mean, I call it, you call it gallows humor, I suppose. It's, it's funny. It's, it's ironic. I know, but it's just, you know, but I'm used to it. You know, I'm 57. I'm used to it. You know, I, if that had happened to me when I was 25 or 35, I probably would have said, I'm never going on TV again. That's horrible. But, you know, yeah. uh, you know, I, you know, it wasn't my first roadie, I they say. So it was okay. Did they ask a question that stumped you or something? No, I was talking a bit and I didn't have a glass. So if I haven't got a glass of water with me, you'll notice I have a cup of tea with me now. Yeah. I get a dry mouth and I get the dry mouth and then I go, oh, no, I've got a dry mouth. I can't speak. And then I start to get a bit anxious and then my mouth gets even more dry. And then I can feel it sticking up and I think, oh, my God, I must look stupid. And, then you know, my thoughts race. Whereas, yeah. So I always take water with me. And on that one, I was just in a really relaxed mood beforehand and I didn't think to take my water and then I panicked. 
Um, whereas normally, you know, you see me on TV and there's always a glass of water nearby and I have this fake pensive look um, to get the water into my mouth. So they ask me a question and I, and I squint my eyes a bit as if I'm thinking about it and I have my glass of water. It's got, I'm not thinking at all. I'm just thinking, make my mouth wet, make my yep. mouth wet so I can speak. And uh, so, you know, and so I'm used to faking, you know, I give the pensive look, the pensive look whilst I'm thinking about the tricky question, mm, drink of water. And then I launch into an answer. And so, and I went to a performance psychologist once, you know, a performance person who taught me all those tricks. It was actually someone who does a lot of the footy clubs. And, you know, she went through all the tricks to control anxiety in an acute situation. And I've used them ever since. And I even have a little bit of paper that's got TV, radio, newspaper, and all the little tricks to keep myself calm. So that's, you know, just, yeah, just stuff like that. We've got time for one. What, what what do you reckon is a really good tip you've got for people uh, or for, you know, what do you use yourself when you're having those moments of anxiety or panic? So probably the biggest thing she taught me, which you'll have heard, you know, footballers talk about when they're kicking for goal is routine. So they teach you to do a routine. So you're focusing on the routine instead of on your anxiety. So I have a very set routine now, um, you know, when I'm doing TV. So I've got a checklist that I always look at beforehand. It's got my water, check my clothes, go into the bathroom, make sure I haven't got food in my teeth. It's got a checklist. Then when I get out there, I sit calmly and I imagine that I'm having fun. I loosen my shoulders a little bit before we go on air and I take a deep breath, you know, and I calm my breathing down and I think this is going to be a lot of fun. So I put myself mm-hmm. in the right frame of mind. And then, um, and then I purposely remind myself to talk slow because I talk super fast. And so talk slow. So in the, and then I get ready for the first question and I purposely take a break, purposely talk slow, and then I have my glass of water. And the other thing I do that some people have noticed this um, even is I always begin with my sleeves down and I roll my sleeves up as I'm talking because it makes me look relaxed and that makes me feel relaxed. It's sort of like, oh, Steve just casually rolling his sleeves up. He's so relaxed. Mm. So, you know, and I do that when I'm publicly speaking. I walk up with my sleeves rolled down and as I get there, I have a drink of my water and I look at the audience as if I haven't got a care in the world. I'm shitting myself. Yeah. I haven't got a care in the world. And then I roll my sleeves up and as I'm rolling my sleeves up, I say, thanks, everyone, for coming along or on the TV. You know, I answer my first question as I'm rolling my sleeve up. So I sort of, it's a version of fake it till you make it, but it's yeah. all, but it's what the performance people call it's routine. And then other, the other thing, you know, and but for me, it's the glass of water. I need something, you know, once my mouth gets dry, that accelerates my nervousness. So yeah. I've got to have that water with me. Always take water. So always take water, have a routine. Two tips. I might start using that uh, jacket roll-up routine. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's good. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Well, Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for giving me this time. I know you got a lot on your plate, um, but I really appreciate it, and I'm sure the listeners do as well. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Broome, and I hope it gets warmer for you. Cheers, mate. And, you know, I think it's fantastic that, you know, uh, you're doing this series of um, podcasts. You know, it's just such a great thing. The more people talk about it, the more we normalise it, the better. And this has been a, a good, fun conversation. Thanks for having me on. No, it's been great. Thank you so much, Steve. Cheers. So that's it. Another episode of Tear It Down. Thank you, Dr. Steve Allen, for joining us on the podcast. If you want to see his work or check out what he does... I'll attach the links in the show notes. Thanks again, everybody. Stay tuned for next Thursday where I'll drop another episode and it'll be just as good if I do say so myself. Tear It Down is a 610 Media production. 
A special thanks to Audio Technica and Zoom for supporting me throughout my podcast journey. Our cover art was done by my talented sister-in-law, Courtney Woods. The music for this show was produced by Bubba Beats. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and also follow us on Apple Podcasts. Yes, it used to be subscribe and I've been saying it for years, but now it's follow. Why fix something if it's not broken? Anyway, now you have to click the little plus icon at the top right hand side of the Apple Podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at 610 Media Group for Instagram and at 610 Media on Facebook. And if you want to get in touch, you can head to 610mediagroup.com or send an email to info at 610mediagroup.com. That's S-I-X and the number 10. Cheers. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.